All right, we are starting our Easter series this week, and it's going to be a, a five-week series in which we are covering the final week of Jesus's life. And uh, the last week of his life is so important because it really it highlights the things that mattered most to Jesus, the things that he wanted to make sure he did before the end, the things that he wanted to make sure he said and taught before the end of his life. And we're starting uh, this morning with Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem and he is greeted by crowds of people who were throwing their coats before him and they're waving palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. It's this glorious moment of triumph for Jesus, but he immediately encounters a problem. You see it there in Luke 19, 39. The Bible says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So, so notice this. Notice what's going on here. They see that the crowds recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They are praising him as the son of David, as the promised Messiah of Israel. And the Pharisees do not like that at all. They hate it. And so they say to him, hey, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. And it's really funny because immediately after this, Jesus goes, well, I could do that. But then the rocks would start singing. So like if you want to hear rocks sing, I will silence them. I can do that. But understand, my praises will be sung. My praises will be sung whether or not if it's by humanity or creation itself. The world cannot contain and withhold praise from the Son of God. But this is the problem he encounters. He comes to his people. And the people who should have recognized him, the religious people, the ones who knew their Bible, the ones who always went to the temple, the ones who did all those things, the ones who should have recognized Jesus are the ones who rejected Jesus. There's hardly a better example of John 1.11 where the Bible says, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You see, the Pharisees had a problem with Jesus. They look at Jesus and they see someone who refuses to teach what they want him to teach. They look at Jesus and they see someone who refuses to do what they want him to do. They see someone who makes messianic claims for himself and someone who accepts praise that is meant only for God, for himself. They see Jesus doing all of these things and it infuriates them. It's because they find they cannot control Jesus and they don't like that. The Pharisees, you'll remember, they love to assert their control and their authority over everyone and everything. But then they come to Jesus and they find that they have no authority over Jesus. They find that they cannot control Jesus and it makes them so angry. And so Jesus, he comes to Jerusalem and he's immediately encountering this problem. And it's the problem of the Pharisees where they had a problem with authority. Now... I can relate to this because believe it or not, and I know it's hard for you to believe, but at a young age, a young age, I was told that I had a problem with authority. Where are the gasps? Oh, come on, folks. I heard an amen from Lisa Chapman. Okay, membership meeting right after this. So, I, I had a problem with authority. I, of course, like most young boys, wanted to do things my way. 
I did not like the idea of someone telling me what I could and could not do. And I thought that I was smart enough. Ashley's pointing at Carter. Ashley, you better chill. <laughs> I thought that I had the authority to, to determine what I could and could not do. I thought I was smart enough to where I could just talk my way out of pretty much anything. And um, the problem is I actually was not in charge. And the bigger problem for me was that God gave me a mother who made sure I knew that I was not in charge. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't have the benefit of growing up in the times like today where so many parents cater to their children and kind of let their children run the show. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, I didn't get to grow up in that time. I had a 90s parent uh, and one who did not play. I, I mean, she didn't play. Let me tell you something. One time, uh, she washed my mouth out with soap. You can figure out why. Uh, but she washed my mouth out with soap, and I was like, this is child abuse. How dare you? I'm calling DSS. You better prepare yourself. This woman grabbed the phone, and she called the chief of police herself by name, had his number, was just chatting, and then hands me the phone. And she says, you got anything you want to say to him? And I was like, not now. No, not really. Seeing y'all are pretty tight. But, I mean, that's what I was dealing with. She would not play she didn't mess around she let me know who was in charge her favorite tactic though she'll agree with this is the way like if an argument a fight was getting out of hand and she just needed to shut it down then she would go to my room and she would get out my suitcase and she start packing my clothes and my belongings and she would say hey listen if you don't like my house and my rules if you don't like the way that I do things around here you don't have to live here you can go live with someone else and she wasn't playing and so I was like, no, mama, I'm so sorry. I love you. I just want to live with you. That was what I was dealing with, right? My mom made sure she straightened out my issues with authority, but I want you to notice it took a firm hand, okay? She may look all sweet, but she's got a studded belt, all right? She's not afraid to use it. It took a firm hand, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's not doing this just because he's prone to anger. He's not doing this because he can't control his emotions. Jesus is doing this because he cares about what is happening in the temple. And he sees that the people who were there have this perception of authority, and they're refusing to bow down to God's authority. And so we need this firm hand of Jesus in our lives to straighten us out as well. Because let's be honest with each other here. I've just opened up to you. Let's be honest. Don't we all still have issues with authority? Yeah, we do. I mean, we like to imagine that we are the authority in our own lives. That we can do whatever we want. That we can set our own course. That we can make the rules. That we can run the church. And we forget who the real authority actually is. And that's what this passage is actually about. It's about who's in charge. Who determines what is acceptable and unacceptable. And the Bible answers with a resounding, it's Jesus. It's not you. It's not the Pharisees. Jesus is the one true authority from God. He runs the show. And something interesting happens when, when people realize that Jesus is in charge, and he's not going to give that up for anybody. Something really interesting happens. For, for many people, it's a comfort. And they take great comfort and hope and peace by resting in Jesus' divine rule and authority. It's freeing. But for many other people, they hate it. When they realize that Jesus is actually in charge, they want nothing to do with him anymore. 
They say, if he's not going to cater to me, if he's not going to condone or overlook my sins, if he's not going to budge, if he's not even going to be willing to barter, I want nothing to do with this Jesus anymore. And the Bible is saying here, Jesus comes to the temple. People weren't expecting him, but they have this immediate encounter with Jesus Christ and the full authority of God. And the Bible is letting us know that for most people in our world today, they too are going to have an encounter with Jesus. Hey, if you come to church on a Sunday morning, you're going to have an encounter with Jesus, much like the Pharisees and all the people in the temple had here. The question is, when you encounter Jesus, how will you respond? Are you going to be one of those that find great comfort and hope and joy in Jesus' divine rule? Or are you going to be one who wants nothing to do with him? When you encounter Jesus, how will you respond? And I want you to see how the people begin to respond in verses 45 through 46. Notice what the Bible says there. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, you need to understand what's going on here, okay? So, so we're, we're entering the last week of Jesus' life, and that means the Passover is drawing near. And, and because the Passover was drawing near, people were coming from all over the world to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, to, to offer up sacrifices at the temple and things like that. And so people are coming from all around. Well, since they're coming from all around... They needed a sacrifice, and it was really impractical to travel such a long distance with a sacrifice, uh, especially because they had to be without blemish. And so people would just buy their sacrifice in Jerusalem, in the temple in this case. And also, since they were coming from so many different places, they needed to exchange their money for local currency. And so that was also taking place here in the temple. People are buying sacrifices, they're exchanging their money for the, cur- for the local currency, And it had become commonplace at this time to overcharge for the sacrifices and not really give a fair exchange rate to the foreigners who were coming from other places. And so the people who were buying and selling, they said, hey, we're doing this service for God, but they were actually just lining their own pockets. They were making a lot of money for themselves. And the worst part is all of this was taking place in an area of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. It was the outermost part of the temple, and it was the only place in the entire temple where the Gentiles were allowed to enter. It was the only place where the Gentiles had an opportunity to encounter and worship God. And all of this is going on in the place of their worship. All of this buying and selling and exchanging, all of this noise and clamor, and so they find that they have no place to actually worship God. And Jesus is enraged by this. He is furious. Now, you might not get that impression just from reading Luke's account. You say, well, it just says he drove them out. Could have been nicely. Hey, y'all, come on now. Let's get out. But when you read the other gospel accounts, it becomes clear. I mean, Matthew 21, 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Mark adds in eleven sixteen that he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So basically, Jesus comes on scene and he shuts everything down. 
He says, no one's coming forward anymore. No one's buying, no one's selling, no one's exchanging because what is going on in this place is dishonoring to God. This is not true, pure worship. Jesus is angry about this. I want you to see this, folks. He is so zealous for the Lord and for proper worship that Jesus is willing to offend people in pursuit of proper worship. That's a hard one for us to come to terms with, is it not? But I want you to understand, that is true, it was true then, and it is true today. Jesus is willing to offend people in pursuit of pure worship. Because the worship here had been contaminated. And worse, the worship had been prevented. I mean, I told you, it's the court of the Gentiles. They, they come here, the one and only place in the temple where they can worship God. And they have no opportunity to encounter God, to hear from God, to pray to God, to seek the face of the Lord because of all the buying and selling and exchanging that's going on here. Their worship was prevented. And so Jesus took action. I want you to pay attention very closely to what's going on here. This is the first time probably that that many of these people are encountering Jesus. And the very first thing that Jesus goes after in the lives of these people is their worship. That's the first thing. It's not how they feel about themselves. It's not their perceived calling or anything else. And the same is true for us. When Jesus is going to come into your life, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, he's going to first start with your worship to the Lord. Because that matters to him. And I want you to see something here. Our worship reveals who our ultimate authority is. You want a way to really expose your problem with authority? And see who you think runs the show? Show me your worship. Your worship is going to reveal whether you think that you can dictate worship or whether you submit yourself to what God says true, honorable, pure, satisfying worship actually is. Jesus comes into our lives and he goes after our worship. We need to be asking ourselves this morning, does our worship show that our primary aim is to please God or to please man? Jesus is showing the religious leaders in this passage as well as us today that we do not have the authority to dictate worship. Does everybody hear me say that? I feel like we got awfully quiet, but let me say it again. Jesus is showing us that we do not have the authority to dictate worship, only God does. Can we get behind that? I want you to notice something else too. And please understand this. God cares about how he is worshipped. He doesn't just care that he is worshipped. That's where many people stop, right? They say, hey, I'm worshipping God. I'm a worshipper of the Lord. That's great, but God doesn't just care about the fact that he is worshipped. God cares about how he is worshipped. And we desperately need to understand that today because there's this very popular idea today that people can just worship God however they want to, however they decide is best, however they see fit to worship him. So they'll say, hey, you can go to church, you, you can you know, read the Bible, you can preach, you can pray, all that kind of stuff. That's how you worship God. That's not how I worship God. I worship God in, in this way, and, and you can worship in a church building, but I like to worship God over here, and I don't need to read my Bible because I worship God in this way. And the Bible says, no, you don't actually. 
God is the one who determines what is acceptable worship. You don't have that right. I don't have that right. I don't get to decide what is acceptable worship in the eyes of God. Jesus alone has that authority. And we need to understand that today because here's what happens. When that idea that we can just decide for ourselves how we want to worship God, when that idea makes its way into a church, you're headed for trouble. You end up with all sorts of buildings and people in those buildings that call themselves a church, but they are not a church. I mean, this explains the travesty of what we saw a few Sundays ago at many churches churches around this country. On Super Bowl Sunday, there were many churches, I, I was looking at this online, there were many churches who made their entire theme and focus for that church service all about the Super Bowl. They decorated all their buildings with decorations related to the two teams playing into the Super Bowl. So you come to a house of worship and you are greeted with football football paraphernalia, football decorations. It's all about the Super Bowl. They passed out tubs of popcorn. They had all sorts of places you could take pictures. You could put in predictions for which team you thought was going to win. There was, a, there was one church that was so invested in this idea of the Super Bowl that they had their pastors, they had multiple pastors on staff, they had their pastors competing in a Super Bowl Sunday. Pastor versus pastor, sermon versus sermon. Flip a coin, see who goes first. One pastor says, I'd like to preach first. Here's how they uh, got the Bible to him. They put it on the ground. One person held it up with a finger, and then the other pastor ran and kicked the Bible off to the other pastor. And no one saw a problem with it. Everybody there was loving it and laughing, smiling, as they just watched a pastor kick the Bible for the sake of a gimmick. Even worse than that, there was one church that decided they were going to have a halftime show. Many of you have already seen the news about this, but they interrupted the pastor's sermon, mid-sermon. Don't, don't do that. I will keep preaching, okay? So, they interrupted the pastor's sermon, mid-sermon, to have a halftime show, so they cut out all the lights. Everybody was given glow-up batons, so it looked like you were in a rock concert. They bring the rock band out on stage. They turn on the smoke machines, and then all of a sudden, you see a staff member come swinging in on a wrecking ball. Yeah. And the whole church starts singing Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus. This was a grown man and a member, a staff member of this church, swinging across the stage, singing a secular song called Wrecking Ball, and the whole crowd loved it. In a church service, meant to focus on and glorify the one true God. And this is what they were doing. Beloved, listen to me, that is not a church. And I don't take that lightly. I don't just throw that around. That is not a church. And I pity any unbeliever who happened to walk in the doors of that place that Sunday not knowing what to expect. Because listen to me, just like the Gentiles in our passage this morning, they were deprived and robbed of an opportunity to worship the Lord. 
how can anyone worship the Lord in that kind of environment? How can anyone worship the Lord to a secular song like that and and to that kind of a, a show? How can anyone do it? You know, you think uh, this place is a den of robbers. We think only of, of money. But no, they were robbed of an opportunity to worship and encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. And people will say to me, but pastor, listen, isn't church supposed to be entertaining? I mean, don't we need to be entertaining, pastor? No, actually we don't. We do not have to be entertaining. Church isn't supposed to be entertaining. Church is supposed to be reverent and honoring to God. And Jordan and I talk about this all the time. You can have fun at church. We do. Y'all ever want to see a good time? Come to my gospel group. We have a good time, okay? You can have fun in church. You can have a good time in church. You can laugh in church. You can enjoy yourself. But I want you to hear me say this, and I want you to really take it in. The goal of the worship service is not to entertain you. The goal of the worship service is to direct your heart to God in holy, reverent worship that is pleasing to Him. If we do that, job well done. I don't care, personally, if you were entertained or not. I have other people say to me, but pastor, you need to think about this. We're never going to grow this place. We're never going to get new families to come in if we're not appealing, if we're not entertaining Don't you want that? I mean, if we want to see more people come to this place, if we want to fill this place up, if we want to get young families into this place, we've got to be appealing. We've got to be entertaining. We're never going to get them unless we do those things. So be it. I do not care. This is a hill I'm willing to die on, and I hope you are too. We will not compromise the integrity of worship for the sake of drawing a crowd. Church, can we please get behind that? Do y'all understand that? I mean, that's all people want to talk about today. You ask any pastor, you ask any person who's in ministry, all they care about is numbers. What'd you run on Sunday? I do not care. That doesn't matter to me. What did Joel Osteen run this Sunday? A couple hundred thousand? Or we just think that's a true church? With him preaching the prosperity gospel? What about Kenneth Copeland? What about T.D. Jakes? What about Creflo Dollar? What about all these people? They can draw a crowd. Who cares how many people they have there on a Sunday morning if it's not holy, honoring worship to God? The crowd does not matter. We will not compromise the integrity of worship for the sake of drawing a crowd. I like the way A.W. Tozer said it. He said, modern religion has accepted the monstrous heresy that noise, size, activity, and bluster make a church pleasing to God. And that's true. I want us to remember something, too, as we talk about this, is you keep people how you get people. Y'all know that, right? So, So if you get people to your church by means of preaching the word biblically and honoring God... That's how you're going to keep them. But if you get people by means of gimmicks and entertainment and things like that, you have to maintain all of those gimmicks, all of that entertainment and everything else just to keep them there. Our goal is not to draw a crowd. Our goal is to draw people to Jesus. And I want us to remember that. That is the goal here. It's not to draw a crowd. It's to draw people to Jesus. I like the way one pastor said it. He said, 
faithful preaching will be boring to unbelievers. Yeah, so people complain, well, he, he preaches the Bible too long, it's boring. It's the Bible. I'm going to preach what it says, okay? Faithful preaching will be boring to unbelievers. Faithful singing will be unimpressive to unbelievers. Faithful praying will be pointless to unbelievers. Faithful giving will be illogical to unbelievers. Faithful worship will not entertain unbelievers. But we need faithful churches. That is what we need. We don't need bigger churches. We need faithful churches. And I want you to see this. When Jesus comes into our lives, when you encounter him today, the first thing he is going to go after is your worship. Now, I want you to notice something about this passage. Jesus cared so much about the integrity of worship that he was willing to offend those who had the most power and influence in the community. Notice this. The the people that Jesus is driving out here, they were part of the in crowd. They had the stamp of approval from the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel. They had the most money and the most sway. They're like many people who say to preachers today, I've actually had people say this to me. Pastor, you know how much I tithe, right? You've seen my tithe? Yeah. Well, if you want to keep getting my tithe, you want me to keep showing up and giving to the church, you better shorten the sermon. You better stop preaching so hard against certain sins. You better start giving my voice a little more weight. You better start doing things my way. Or I'll take my tithe elsewhere. I've had people say that to me. By the way, that does not work. I will not change any of what I just listed because you give money. You can take it to another church. Those are the type of people Jesus is dealing with here. Do you see that? They're the type of people who would have gone to Jesus and say, Hey, hey, listen now. You need to stop saying some of the things you've been saying or I'm going to go sell my goods elsewhere and the temple just won't have my money anymore. Jesus would have been like, yeah, that's great, actually. (laughs) That would be preferable to what I'm about to do. They never had the opportunity to say that to Jesus, of course, because he packed their bags for them. He he flipped over all their tables because I want you to see this. Jesus was not going to be influenced by people's purse. Jesus was not going to be intimidated by someone's status. Jesus refused to compromise. And of course, the buyers, the sellers, the traders, they were were justifying what they were doing. They're saying, hey, listen, it's not really a sin. We're in the temple after all. We're, we're, We're doing a service for the Lord. We're giving back a portion of what we make. This is a good thing. They're trying to justify what they're doing. But listen to me, they knew it was a sin. But here's what they were hoping. They were just hoping that God would be more interested in making a deal than he was in their sin. They were wanting to make a deal with Jesus. Hey, hey, what if we keep doing exactly what we're doing? We don't change anything, but in return, we'll give you a cut of what we make. How does that sound? Here's what they failed to understand and what we desperately need to understand this morning is that when we encounter Jesus, we're expected to submit, not negotiate. When we encounter Jesus, we're expected to submit, not negotiate. 
I know that might offend some people, but it is biblically accurate and true. God is not open for negotiation. He does not come into your life looking to barter. He comes into your life demanding that you lay down your life before him and follow him. And I want to show you how Jesus exposes our problem with authority, right? So here's what happened. Uh, anytime we know what the Lord says, and, and listen to me, we do know what he says because it's right here in the inspired word of God. So we know what he says. Anytime we know what the Lord says and what he requires of us and we try to get out of it or get around it by means of negotiating, Jesus has just exposed our problem with authority and our refusal to submit with him, to submit to him. And we can get even more specific, right? So here's what it looks like. Jesus uh, exposes a sin in someone's life and he begins to convict them of that sin and he, and he tells that person to cut it out of your life. Get rid of it. Turn from it. This thing is going to kill you. It will lead to death and damnation. So get rid of it and turn to me. Leave it behind. And people say, well, I can't do that, Jesus. Or, or more commonly, they say, I won't do that, Jesus. But here's what I am willing to do. I can't do that. can't give up that sin. I like it too much. Here is what I am willing to do, though. Uh, I will begin to read my Bible for 10 minutes a day. How does that sound? I mean, I'm serious. People barter like, can, can we just take a, a, a moment to appreciate how ridiculous it is to try to negotiate with God like that? Have you ever actually thought this through? Like, I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine God in heaven, okay? And he's there, and he's surrounded by the heavenly council. And he's talking to him, and he says, okay, I'll use my own name for this. Okay, y'all know that I was convicting Alex of this sin in his life. I told him to turn from it, but it uh, turns out he doesn't want to give it up. So here's the new offer on the table. We're going to consider it together. Uh, he gets to continue in his sin, and in return, he has promised that he's going to read the Bible for 10 minutes a day. Now listen, that's 10 more minutes a day that I can speak directly into his life, and I can convict him of even more sins that he's just going to ignore and not listen to. So what do we think? Should we take the deal? That's how ridiculous it looks when we try to barter and negotiate with God. We come to God like we're on Shark Tank or something. Let's just back and forth, back and forth. That's not how it works. God says, I'm, I'm not looking to make a deal. I've told you what I expect of you. Th that is the deal. There is no negotiating. And yet, I, I want to just say, like, aren't we all guilty of trying to negotiate with God and barter with him? You might not be willing to admit it, but just, but listen, here's, here's, you know, people will say, Lord, I know that you want me to gather with the church. I know that you want me to prioritize the church in my life, but, but listen, God, there are other things that I want to do. So, so here's what I am willing to do. I'm not willing to start prioritizing the church in my life, but I am willing to only listen to Christian music on the radio or songs that don't cuss. How does that sound? Or men, you know I like to go in on you a lot. Men, you know that God has called you to be the spiritual leader of your family. God has called you men. I'm talking to the men here, not the women. God has called you to lead your wife and your children spiritually. To step up, 
to show them what Christ is supposed to look like in their lives, to love them as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for the church. You are supposed to teach your family about Jesus and be uh, Christ in their lives and show them what Christ looks like in this world today. That is your calling, men. But how many men today will say, well, God, instead of doing that, what if I'm just a really good husband and father? Like, is that enough? Can, can I just be a really good husband and father? What if, what if I provide for my family financially? What if, I, what if I protect them? What if I help them out with, with chores and I, I do all sorts of things? What if I'm, I'm present in my child's life? What if I, I put her to bed occasionally or I read a book? Like, can I just be a really good husband and father? God's going to say, that's great. You should do those things. But also, you're called to be the spiritual leader of your families. That doesn't go away. God says, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. And we say, but what if I give 10% to the church? Great, thank you. But still, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. God says, don't get drunk or be a drunkard. And people go, but what if I go to church on Sunday? Fantastic. We're so happy that you're here. But still, don't get drunk or be a drunkard. I want you to listen to me say this, all right? It's not in your notes, but I need you to understand this. God is not going to compromise on one area of your life just because you try to make up for it in another area of your life. We need to understand that today. God is not going to compromise on one area of your life just because you try to make up for it in another area of your life. When you come face to face with Jesus... What this passage shows us is that there are really only two responses. And I want you to see them there very, very quickly. Verses 47, 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Do you, do you see the two responses there? It's great, isn't it? Because you've got the same Jesus with the same message and the same action. And that one man with his one message and his one action causes two drastically different responses. Some people see Jesus and what he says and does, and they want to destroy him. They're driven away from him. They want nothing to do with him. But then there are others, and they see who Jesus is and what he says and what he does And the Bible says they are hanging on his every word. They're drawn in to Jesus. They cannot get enough of Jesus. And that's the whole point of this passage. I want you to understand, when we encounter Jesus, we will either be drawn in or driven away. Those are the only two responses. When you encounter Jesus, we will either be drawn in or driven away. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the snow. And the same gospel that hardens hearts also softens hearts. And the same Jesus who so many are drawn to and can't get enough of is the same Jesus who turns people away. And the question is, which is it for you? When you see Jesus and who he actually is, are you drawn to him or are you driven away from him? I want you to see that we need Jesus' authority 
in our lives. It's one of the reasons the Father sent him in the first place. It's because he said these people have no idea how to run their lives. These people are terrible authorities for themselves. If he had left us on our own, we would have continued to give in to our sin time and time again. We would have continued to run our lives into the ground and the lives of others. We would have continued to dictate and participate in dishonorable and deeply displeasing worship. And so the Father sends his Son to be the authority that we need in our lives. And he shows us what a life that pleases God looks like. Jesus shows us what worship that pleases God looks like. And Jesus, who has all the authority of the Trinity within himself, uses his authority to lay down his life. He uses his authority to lay down his life and suffer and die for sins that he did not commit. Also that a bunch of ungrateful, unworthy, no good, wayward sinners like us would be reconciled to God and have life in Christ. That's why he did that. Church, I want you to look to Christ today. I want you to see him as the people in this passage see him. I want you to see his love, his mercy, his grace, his passion, his authority, and then I want you to lay down your life at his feet. I want you to see what he demands of you and be willing to submit yourself to him. I need you to understand that when he comes into your life today, there is no bartering, there is no negotiating. You're either going to be drawn in or you're going to be driven away. Let's go to God in prayer.